I learnt from Marco's example last time he preached to sit as close to the front as possible just so I don't trip over a chair on the way up. So, <laughs> um, so this afternoon we're going to be looking at uh, the passage we just read. Um, and this is really, this, it's, it's an interesting part of the book of John. Um, the book of John itself is written in a way that focuses on the deity of Christ, focuses on showing Christ in his divine nature with the ultimate purpose of laying out the gospel accounts so that the reader may believe in Jesus. John himself states this in chapter 20 of his book. So we're going to be entering a part of this book known as Jesus' final instructions to his disciples. It's also known as his farewell or upper room discourse or his final meal um, or final supper with his disciples. This is laid out from chapters 13 all the way through to 17, which we know as his high priestly prayer. It sort of concludes at that point um, before he is betrayed. So John spends a great portion of his gospel just laying out what, we, um, what Jesus is trying to express to his disciples in their last moments together. So it's essentially his final moments to teach his disciples before he dies, rises again, and is glorified. It's really the commissioning of the new covenant. Jesus says this when his institution in communion itself later. It's a moment where Jesus ceases to speak in parables, like he did earlier, and he speaks clearly to his disciples face to face in an intimate setting before he departs. We're specifically going to be focusing on the new commandment given in John 13, verses 34 to 35. And it's seeking to understand this, we'll be cycling back, um, looking at the whole context of John to understand the, um, the context of the commandment. So open your Bibles and we'll, what we'll do is we'll just begin by reading from John 13, uh, verse 31 to the end of the chapter and then we'll dive in from there. Starting in verse 31. When he, that is Judas, had left... Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you for a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new command. Love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. The title for this sermon is The New Command of Love. And for the note takers, um, I have six points, or six main points to this sermon. And in true St. John's Park Baptist Church fashion, I thought I should make them all begin with the same letter. So (laughs) they begin with the letter E for, um, I guess, ability to remember. Point number one is the edict of love. By that I mean command. Point number two, example of love. Three, the essentialness of love. Four, the encompassing of love. 
Five, the energy for love. And six, the effect of love. So jumping straight into point one, the edict of love. Loving is not a new command. We see that love has been implicitly commanded in Scripture all the way back from Cain being considered evil due to his murdering of his brother, which was shown as a lack of love. Moving forward in Scripture, we see explicit commands to love God and to love our neighbours given in the law. Further to this, in the New Testament, we see these reinstated or restated when Christ claimed that the two greatest commands of all are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. He stated that this really summarises all of the law and the prophets. So first we need to understand that loving is not a new commandment by any means. So why is this called a new command? Um, I've been reading a book. I didn't want to type it out, so I brought it up here. It's called um, The Law of Christ by Charles Leiter, and I've been finding it um, quite interesting in just understanding the whole purpose of the covenants and um, especially his focus on the centre of the new covenant being on the new command. So I'm just going to read a section of his book here, um, and it's just about two paragraphs. When we think of the new commandment, we must remember that it was not the only thing that was new in the evening of the upper room. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup um, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new commandment is called new because it accompanies a new covenant. When the old covenant was given, there was a covenant meal, the sprinkling of blood and the setting forth of commandments for people to obey Even so, when the new covenant is given, there is a covenant meal, the Lord's Supper, the shedding of blood, the blood of Christ, and the giving of a new commandment for us to follow. This new commandment is not some new type of legal code that we are to follow, but it is a reminder of what is truly important in the Christian life. Think of it, beloved. Under the old covenant, there were all sorts of laws and regulations to be meticulously followed, In fact, 613 of them, under the new covenant, we have one command given to us as the, um, to keep central in our thinking. So that's, in one sense, why this command is considered new, because it's coming with a new covenant. When we look at the text and we break it apart exegetically, we see that there are other ways of newness in it. Let's look at verse 34 um, to drag this out. So... Focus on the words where Jesus says that you are to, um, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. This is a one another command that is given here. The first thing that we must recognise is where this statement sits in the context of John, and that's what we talked about at the start of this message. Jesus is now alone with his disciples in their last moments together. The immediate audience hearing this command is the believers with him. Jesus had even waited until Judas had left for him to give this commandment. The new command shows love towards a particular target, that is believers, the church, not just to neighbours. We have a special command given here that we should be loving the disciples of Jesus in a special way that is separate to how we are to love the world. It is an exclusive command for the church, for the disciples in the new covenant, 
It is for believers and it's to be operated to believers. This teaches us that there is a special kind of love that we are to have to those inside the church. Typically, we can think it is most important to love those and focus all our efforts on those outside the church. Because if we do that, and we focus all our efforts there, then maybe they'll get saved and um, maybe that's the, the best way we can expand the kingdom of God. But it's important to understand why this command is so binding on the new covenant for us to understand how God is glorified when we follow it. So that's the first part of what we see um, exegetically in the newness of this command. The second part is in the way that we are to love. Look again at the text at verse um, 34 where Jesus says, As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. This statement is teaching us that Christ is the standard of love. Our actions of love towards each other must now reflect the same magnitude and nature of the love that Christ had shown to his disciples. To further uh, drive this point, we see that Jesus commanded this two more times in the Upper Room Discourse. We see that in chapters 15, uh, specifically in verses 12 and 17. What this is telling the reader is a central theme to the New Covenant is love for one another. The Upper Room Discourse was the commissioning of the church, the New Covenant, and the command of love is the central um, feature that is binding in this covenant. So this leads us to the question, why would he command this? Jesus had, a, had only hours left before he was crucified. Is this really the most important thing he could have said? Well, when you look at verse 33, Jesus states, Little children, I'm with you for a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. While Jesus was on earth, he was with his disciples in his physical presence. However, in a matter of hours, Jesus will be separated from them by his death. And then we see later again, after he is resurrected, he is, that's, he's not permanently with his disciples physically from that point on. He has to be ascended at that point. So, in one sense, the, the reason why the new command is so important here is, to, is that we are meant to be the hands and feet of Jesus towards each other in the way that Jesus was towards the disciples in his life. This leads us to the next point, point number two, which is the example of love. And this will tell us what our love should look like. Point number two, the example of love. We see that Christ has given multiple examples of love towards his disciples throughout his life. He loved his disciples by continually praying for them, teaching them, even healing their sick family members, such as Peter. However, let's dive into the context specifically here in John 13. Um, And this is the context of the washing of the feet. And I want to read again from verses 4 to 17, just to have it fresh in our minds before we discuss it. So starting from verse 4. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, tied it around himself. Next he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not realize now, 
but afterward you'll understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I do, don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. The one who was bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet. But he is completely clean. And you were clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. This is why he said not all of you are clean. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclines again and said to him, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now there's so much we could unpack in this section of uh, John 13 alone, but we just want to look at the overall um, example that, of love that is shown here. Just to start, look at verse 15 where Jesus says, For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. When you read commentaries on John 13, a lot of the commentators point you between verses 15 and verses 34, and they're saying there is a link between the way that Jesus has told his disciples they are to love and the example given. So the direct example is actually the foot washing. So how is this an example of love? Let's talk about that, the foot washing. Typically, this was a task reserved for slaves. With poor footwear and poorly um, built and dusty roads, foot washing was an essential service in the ancient world. Typically, the host would organise for a slave to be present to wash the people's feet when an event was happening. Today, we might not see the need as we have modern infrastructure, better footwear and travel technologies. This makes no sense at all for Jesus to begin washing feet, especially as a teacher. It would have been a hideous thing for the people in Israel to see. It's even difficult for us to find a modern equivalent of this. I was trying to think and find something and... The best I could sort of think of at the time was um, washing someone's dirty laundry by hands. But even that might be missing the, the point of how lowly this task actually was. Without looking into this too deeply, the, the overall point is Jesus is their teacher. Above that, he is their master, their Messiah, their Lord, the promised one, the older brother, and their God. The position he took here was one of a slave, and it was actually looked down by both Jews and Gentiles. The towel wrapped around his waist further symbolises how lowly of a status that Jesus was taking on in his serving. In the Jewish community, this was often assigned to non-Jewish slaves because they didn't want to tie this type of, um, I guess, stooping down with their culture. Peter's comments are called for. He was probably the one who spoke up out of the group in shock. Are you washing my feet? To quote D.A. Carson on this, he says, His act of humility is as necessary as it is stunning and is simultaneously a display of love and a symbol of saving cleansing and a model of Christian conduct. To show the connection... Oh, sorry, end quote. So to show the connection of this act to the cross, um, you can see this in verses uh, 10 and 11. And it's important to see that because this is ultimately a symbol of the greater sacrifice and the greater service that Jesus gave. 
In verses 10 to 11, um, I don't want to go into the Greek. I'm absolutely no expert there, so I'm just going to stick to English words here that we see in um, the translation we've got here. But Jesus makes a distinction between two types of washing, between bathing and washing. A bathing meaning a complete washing of oneself, and bathing meaning uh, and washing meaning the general foot washing of um, of people's feet. So, what Jesus is symbolising here is when he's saying that you have been bathed, you have been fully washed. That's talking about his sacrifice that he has done, that he is about to accomplish for his people. However, there's still a necessary general foot washing that his disciples need as they go out through their lives in the world. Um, Further quoting Carson on this, individuals who have been cleansed by Christ's atoning work will doubtless need to have subsequent sins washed away, but the fundamental cleansing can never be repeated. End quote. This passage teaches us that the new command of love is not about loving as you want to be loved, but rather loving as Christ actively loved. It's a type of love that doesn't sit back and wait to serve in a way that it thinks it's best suited for. It's active. It doesn't wait to be asked, but it looks for gaps and needs and runs to fill them above and beyond, not looking at yourself or considering yourself. We can learn a few points of, um, of what Christ's love looks like from this passage and I'm just going to break it into four, um, four quick points that we can write down for this. Number one, it goes downwards. This kind of love and service goes from rich to poor, from intelligent to uneducated, from older to younger. It breaches social classes and income brackets. We see from verses 16 and 17 that Jesus says, no servant is greater than their master. Christ did this, and we also must do this. Jesus got on his knees without an outer garment to wash people's feet. This is the type of downward action our love needs to show. Point number two, it's active. It's a love that doesn't sit back and wait for someone to reach out. Verse one tells us that Christ chose to love them. Where it's where John writes of Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In verse four, we see that Christ initiated the foot washing by rising up after supper and acting. He was on the lookout for the need. He didn't wait to be asked. Number three, it's self-sacrificing. This is a costly type of love. The foot washing cost Jesus his pride. But ultimately, the greater example of love that this is reflecting cost Jesus his life. When we serve one another... If we are to serve and love in the way that Christ did, we don't give out of our leftovers, so to speak. We give out of our fattened calves. We give out of our supplies. We give out of what we live on, our lifeblood, not just what we can do away with. Point number four, it requires deep humility. Jesus took on the form of a servant here when he is the master. You can't do that unless you have humility. There is a representation of Christ's whole act of redemption um, that we see in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11, and I'll just read that. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be exploited. 
Instead, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. By this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The love that which Jesus had um, shown to his disciples was humiliating. This was a constant theme throughout his life, like Paul wrote about in Philippians. So knowing the example of love, we must move to see the essentialness of it if we are to have a motivation for keeping this command or even to serve as a warning for disobeying it. Point number three, the essentialness of love. So love can be seen throughout the whole New Testament as the greatest attribute of a Christian. Think of how Paul tended to address the churches in most of his letters. He shows joy because of the church's love for one another. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, we see that Paul writes, We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightfully so, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Colossians 1 verse 4, For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. Further consider that the fruit of the Spirit begins with love. 1 Corinthians 13 states that love in the context of the church is the greatest amongst every spiritual gift. If our lives aren't ones marked by love for Christians, we should be concerned. That's what these New Testament passages are teaching us. How will you know if you're his disciple? You can do a study on 1 John to see it because that is re- 1 John is laying out the, the explanation of what a Christian looks like. So that's for the long answer. You can read that. The short answer, of the summary of 1 John is, you will love one another. To further drive this point, I want to turn to Jesus' own words about the example of love that we are to show one another and ultimately in the display of it at the end of time. Um, So turn to Matthew 25 and we'll read from verses 31 to 46. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and he'll put the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he said to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, 
prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you didn't care for me. Then the Lord too, then they were to answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. What we're seeing from this passage and from the rest of the New Testament is that the true evidence of faith is summarized in love. Particularly, it's summarized in our love for one another. That's the litmus test for our faith. We can't say that we love God if we have no regard for the needs of those who are God's people. This passage itself shows us that if we are really to call ourselves Christians, if we don't have evidence of these actions of love, towards the least of these, towards the brothers and sisters of Jesus, we should be concerned. This truly adds weight to the command that we're given in John 13. So knowing the essentialness of love, we need to understand how important love is in the Christian life. And I've called the next points, um, point, so point number four, I've called it the encompassing of love. Um, just to sort of summarise or to drive the point home of how uh, how effective love is in the life of a Christian. So point number four. Not only is love essential, but it summarises all the Christian affections under the one name. Not only are we commanded by Christ with this new command, but Paul himself repeats it in the New Testament. Romans 13 states it clearly, when you love one another, you fulfil the law. I'll read this from Romans 13, 8 to 10. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong. Love, therefore, is the fulfilment of the law. What we're learning here is the whole of the law has been summarised by this new command of love. This kind of love is a love to the least of these. Most of the time it's love towards those we typically wouldn't want to love. And at times it's love to those we consider unlovable. Nevertheless, it's essential. In Christ we were all alienated from one another, but now we've been brought by our unity with Christ into a community where we are to love one another. And we can see from this passage that when we do love one another, we really are fulfilling the meaning and the intent behind what the law was supposed to do. I'll quote Jonathan Edwards in his book, The Religious Affections. Um, For a brief context of the book, Jonathan Edwards wrote this during a time of... uh, what was known as the Great Awakening in America, where people were being saved all over the place. And he really was thinking, what does a Christian look like? What does the New Testament teach us? Um, what, what does the New Testament teach us are the attributes of the Christian life? And this is a quote from him. But it is doubtless true and evidence from the Scriptures that the essence 
of all true religion lies in holy love and that in this divine affection and a habitual disposition to it and the lights which is foundational to it and those things which are the fruit of it consists the whole of religion. End quote. We must understand the encompassing of love if we are to understand and obey the new commandments because when doing so we see that when we get love right we get the rest of the Christian life right. This moves us on to a question how do we love? It's essential to the Christian life it's important how do we do it? I'm not talking about the example here. I'm actually asking, how do we physically get the energy to do this? We fail so often. Let's look at Jesus' answer to this in the upper room discourse itself. If you turn over a chapter to John 14, um, let's read verses 15 to 17. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus didn't simply give the church this new command and then leave and expect us to perfect it by our own strengths. He gave us a helper. He knew that we couldn't do it. And that's the point of the new covenant is that we need the Holy Spirit to change our heart. We've been talking a lot about the essentialness of loving here, but really this is not for an unbeliever to just think, okay, I'm going to try loving. Really, you need to understand who Christ is and have the Holy Spirit in you before you can even begin to fulfill this command. So he gives us the Holy Spirit. I mentioned Paul before in Romans 13, so I'll show that Paul has the same answer in Romans 5. Romans 5.5 tells us that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We can't do this by ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit. We need his help and we need to have him pour God's love into our own hearts. How do we be filled with the Spirit? I thought a brief exercise might be helpful. I've done this for uh, a Bible study a few times and I have to give credit where credit is due. I heard this in a John MacArthur sermon on being filled with the Holy Spirit. So turn to Ephesians 5, 18 to 20 and with whatever means you have, your finger or bookmark, just make a mark in that point, just hold that there. And when you've got that, turn over to Colossians three sixteen. And just keep those two ready for you to sort of cross-reference between. Ephesians 5 verses 18 to 20 tells us, And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making, singing and making music with all your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything, to give God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sorry, I read that wrong. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the command here? The command is simple. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Doesn't sound simple if we don't know what that means. Like, we need to understand, well, 
we've been commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Is there something that we do? Do we, you know, do we have to work something up for the Spirit to come into our lives? Well, let's look at the, the fruits of what it means to be filled with the, the Holy Spirit. There are three points that we see. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing. Giving thanks always. Okay, jump over to Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. What's the command here? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What are the results? Teaching one another through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, having gratitude in your hearts. So the fruits of being filled with the Holy Spirit are consistent with the fruits of letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That gives us an, an understanding of what it really means to be filled with the Spirit. The key word there is richly. It's not a glancing over of the Bible and that's, not a, that's really not enough to be filled with it. Richly means we're savouring it. We're feasting on it. We're saturating our minds with it. We're meditating on it. And we are to ask God for him to um, fill us with the Holy Spirit to a greater measure when we dwell on the words of Christ. And in that, and when we are motivated by Christ's example and Christ's love in the Gospels and the New Testament, entirely the whole of the Bible, then we go out and serve in the power of the Spirit. I originally had five points to the sermon, but looking back at the text, I think we have to do... Um, it would be empty if we left it there. Point number six is the effect of love. So John 13, verse 35, tells us, by this, and this is by fulfilling the new covenant, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. The point here is simple. What happens when the church shows this type of love to each other? The world will look in on and see that Christ is our King. They'll understand that we truly are His disciples. If we preach the gospel and we don't have love or fellowship with one another, our gospel message is void. There's no power in it. So those are our six points and just to end with I would like to ask one last question what does this love practically look like and I've just taken down three points for what I call action points of new covenant living or new covenant loving so what we learn from John 13 is number one we need to as the church look for the need What made Christ's love so effective and compelling is that he always met the disciples' needs. In the passage, they had a need for having their feet physically washed. That was just a symbol for what the greater need was. They truly need to have their whole soul cleansed from the sin and filth that they were marked with. And Christ saw the need, Christ initiated, and he was the one to meet it. We need to have eyes ready to see the needs. And how can we be ready as a church to meet each other's needs and to see it? We need to be present. 
Christ was present with his disciples for most of his ministry. He was present with them in the upper room discourse. We need to meet frequently, regularly. It doesn't mean, and it means that we don't run away after we've been to a service or talking with each other to the busyness of life as is so tempting to. Um, but we need to be in each other's lives. Whether that be by joining each other, by studying the Bible together, praying together, or even serving in ministry together. For example, we have things like the English teaching class and the evangelism ministry. When we're serving in that capacity, a lot of the needs are communicated. Similar to a war, a lot of the need comes from when the battle is most fierce and those on the front line are seeing the needs as they're being portrayed out, not necessarily needs written down from months prior. So we need to be present. And when we see a need, we need to move to point two, which is meet the need. When we look at the foot washing, we see that Jesus met the need by stooping down in the reverse order of what the world would have had done, from the greater to the lesser, the richer to the poorer, the stronger to the weaker. Christ met their need with self-sacrificing love. We shouldn't complain when we have to stoop down in our service. There was no sign of Christ grumbling or complaining as he washed the disciples' feet. There was no sign of him grumbling or complaining in the greater act when he was crucified. So we need to let the love of Christ compel us in our service to use the resources we have to serve one another as Christ has served his disciples. When a need arises, we need to simply not be tempted to move on in conversation by saying, well, pray about it. We need to be looking inwardly and asking ourselves, can I financially help in some way? Can I sacrifice time of something I'm doing this week to meet the need? One of the ways that we can best meet the needs of believers around us is even to do a study of all the one and others in Scripture, as that will motivate us at that point to see all the different ways that we can meet each other's needs. So that's our homework for all of us. So John, being motivated by the new command, later wrote in 1 John 3:16 to 17, This is how we have come to know love, that he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? The new command of love calls out to us to be radically inspired by the love that Christ has shown to us. We truly are are without excuse when we compare ourselves to Christ. The foot washing just came hours before Jesus was sweating drops like blood in the garden. He could have told his disciples in his last moments, you guys have a dinner together, serve yourselves, I need to be by myself preparing. But no, he chose the last moments he had to be with his disciples in love and show them love. So we need to pray for his strength and for his spirit to meet the needs that we see in the lives of those around us. And lastly, and probably most importantly in understanding how we are to love one another, is we need to repeat, point three. Loving is not a one-off occurrence, but similar to how you must love in a marriage, it must be daily. We will always be under the command of the new covenant. Many needs will continue to arise around us. And instead of looking at the need and saying that, 
We just don't have the time or the money or we just don't have the, the gift that's required for the need. We just need to ask God for strength and go and meet the need because these are those who are in our family. So let us then love one another as Christ has loved us, remembering the promise that is laid out in John 13, verse 17. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, thank you for the words that were given through Christ in the new covenant, Lord. We didn't have a set of 613 rules that were laid out for us in the new covenant, but one that really summarised all of your moral code, that we are to love one another. Lord, I pray that we would be motivated to show this love towards each other, Lord, that you'll teach us how to be self-sacrificing, Lord, teach us humility in the same way that Christ had humility. And above all, Lord, we ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit, fill us your Holy, with your Holy Spirit, to a measure that we can go out and serve one another in a way that we are the hands and feet of Christ to those around us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.